go. Hello. Hello. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood variety show. <laughs> it's history time. History. I talk about single men. Men are not getting married like good boys. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Let's do it. This week we are talking about singles. Swingin', singles, singledom. Single and not ready to mingle. Exactly. Well, maybe ready to mingle, but not ready to get married. Yeah. Because we're going to start off this week by defining our terms. So this week when we're talking about single people, we are not talking about what researchers refer to as life cycle singledom, which is, you know okay, you are, you know, unmarried yet, but you will eventually get married, right? Like, there is the expectation that the person would eventually get married, right? So for the majority of people, historically, you know, there would be a period of their life where they would be single, which we had talked about earlier in the season, but this time we are talking about lifelong singlehood. So these are men and women who either could not or chose not to get married for their entire life. The other thing is we are not talking about widows or widowers in this episode because that's going to come later and also that's a different part of life. Like being being married and then losing your spouse had different legal and social implications than being someone who had never married at all. And we're also not going to be talking about um, people who didn't marry for religious reasons, such as monks or nuns, because again, joining a religious community and devoting your life to God is not, it wasn't legally or socially the same thing as someone who was a lay person, so non, you know, not living in a religious uh, institution. And also not somebody who, like, had been married and is now widowed or somebody who was, you know, still still in their late teens and early 20s and just hadn't gotten married yet. So, now that we've defined our terms, let's jump right into it of what choosing to remain single or, in some cases, being forced to remain single looked like back in the day. Yeah. Sounds good. So, I mean, it doesn't. It sounds like it's not going to be a great time. I mean, for some people, it was a great time. Or at least, like, a better time than <laughs> marriage would have been. <laughs> so I guess we're going to start off, as we normally do, with me taking it from the classical slash ancient world into the early modern period. And then I hand it off to Margot, who's going to tell us all about Quakers this time. Woo! So let's start out in the classical world. At this point, as we talked about previously, you know, pre-Christian Europe, marriage is nearly universal. Um, in ancient Rome, there are penalties even, in some cases, leveled at people who refuse to get married. <laughs> so... What, 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 are the, what are the penalties? Oh, it's like, you know, you have to pay a fine or like, you, get, you know, you, you don't get certain tax breaks and whatever. Oh. Um, it was it so was just pretty standard much yeah. like now yes much, much like now being single just meant like eh, although th there you literally had to like pay fines in some cases to my right, understanding right, right, right. whereas here it's just like you don't get to combine your income with someone else's and then kind of meet in the middle the tax bennies yeah exactly um but we start to see more and more people who are basically I'll say able to be single as we've spoken about before when you reach the middle ages and we have this sort of 
newer trend, newer take on marriage where, you know, young people are becoming roughly the same age when they marry or at the very least are both adults at the time of marriage um, and where young people are having more and more of a say in their partner. So basically, in some cases, what this looked like was just people either choosing to remain single or being pressured essentially by family or by their economic status into not getting married. So we're going to talk about men for a little bit, but a lot more research has been done on unmarried lifelong single women in the Middle Ages and early modern period, so that will be our focus. But let's start off with men. So single men, there was a very small percentage of men that remained single as compared to women, but as we said, that status has also not been studied as much. In some communities at certain times in the Middle Ages, there Basically, people would decide that having some of your sons not get married would be advantageous. So basically, it's this idea of, okay, we need to limit the number of children who are born into our family. How do we do this? By having some of our sons not marry and instead live at home and just help on the farm and stay part of this, you know... um, stay part of their family of origin rather than pairing off and starting like a new family home with a spouse. So among the aristocracy, um, unmarried sons were relatively rare until the rise of primogeniture in in and around the year 1000, which is the idea that rather than dividing up your inheritance, the oldest son gets basically everything. Um, so there would be some, there would be some inheritance, like dowries and stuff given to the daughters and younger sons might get like some amount of money or some amount of goods. But for the most part, your first son gets your estate and like the land is not going to be chopped up. So a lot of the time you could maybe have a man like a younger son would join a monastery right because wouldn't it be like first son inherits then second son is the ghost of the clergy and third son learns not like a trade but like the law yeah like a lot of the time that it wasn't necessarily quite like completely laid out and rigid like that and it would you know, in ideal circumstances, you would also look at your son's personalities to be like, okay, well, this one seems better suited to be, you know, a monk than this one does. Or, like, they join the military, like, buy them a commission. Yes, or, like, they can be, I mean, this isn't in the Middle Ages quite yet, joining uh, the military, but what you might look into is, yeah, exactly, they could go into town to learn, like, either some type of a trade or they would go to school to you know you could become a physician or you know become a a lawyer etc so you know in some cases these men would not have married because they would not have been able to attract a woman of their social status right because you as the son of a lord or whatever you still have that certain social status but you cannot marry a woman of that status because you have no land or wealth to offer her. Um, So a lot of the time, though, I mean, you would see younger sons would tended to try to and did marry heiresses or widows because she had land and money. Because, I mean, as much as it sounds very mercenary and (laughs) cold, it's like that's... That is the reality of how people gained land and power, basically. Um, And for regular people, you know, for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, um, 
some men would not marry because they were a labor force that was needed on the farm without having any dependents. So there might be a certain number of sons or a certain number of daughters who would never marry and would instead remain at home in order to, you know, basically provide work and sustenance along their family farm without producing children. Um, This especially worked out if you had sons who stayed at home because even if he had a child out of wedlock, the blame wasn't going to be placed on him. Like the child that resulted from that would be the unmarried woman and her family's like job to take care of basically like you didn't really have an obligation to that child and with that we will now go on to medieval single women so we here like are talking about a woman born between the 5th and the 15th century who did not marry at any point in their life and during this time frame there is a pretty wide range but Anything from between 10 to 20% of medieval people just generally remain single and unmarried, um, a group largely composed of servants. And we can't know for sure, for sure, the demographics of all places, but from what we can see in terms of records, right, there are, especially uh, in the 14th and 15th century when people start writing things down a bit more, um, you get a bit bit more... um, clarity on this. So, for example, in England in 1377, about one-third of adult women were single women, which that proportion would, uh, that actually would include widows and nuns, to my understanding. Um, But, you know, that's a significant part of the population that, you know, not all of them would have been widows and nuns. Um, And in Florence... You have in 1427, there's about one-fifth of all adult women were single. And based on this versus marriage records and fertility records, there does seem to be, you know, again, that between 10 and 20% of women who never married in the Middle Ages. And it seems to be like it would have been hovering around 10% most of the time. Um, It really did depend on where you lived though because there were many more single women in cities than in the countryside Um, and this is basically due to the fact that there were a lot more opportunities for single women in urban areas Um, because you could move into a city and so basically there were a lot more single women in cities than there were in the countryside because in the countryside you tended to have about even sex ratios Um, like just in terms of number of men, number of women versus cities actually were predominantly uh, female for the most part. Not like all the time, but let me rephrase that. Why? Um, (laughs) Basically, there tended to be more women than men in urban areas because you had so many women who would come in from the countryside to work as maids, as servants. Um, They might do things like piecework. They might do kind of small, odd jobs, basically. And it it was also an opportunity, right? This economic migration was an opportunity for you to escape customs, basically, in your home village where preference would be given to men a lot of the time, right? So... So then, okay, that, so my question is, like, because that seems to add up to there being more women in the world. Yes. Okay. And there, there also, like, there were more women um, a lot of the time, specifically because men tend to die in wars and stuff more so. Right, right, um, right, 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 right. So, yeah, I think that's partly it and it's partly that like basically what would happen would be within your home village right the sex ratios of the village itself would be about 50 50 but and like you would have like a roughly stable population within your village but if you are a young man who's looking for work you are probably going to become like a migrant laborer in the countryside so you're not going to be tallied up 
necessarily in the village like sex ratio as we would think right. about it because you're a migratory worker who's coming in for the season to like yeah. oh yeah i will help out with your harvest and like i will shear your sheep and like that kind of thing whereas women would be more so um more stable yeah. and living typically with a family as servants right. um, and you had a lot more uh, female servants in a household than you would have male servants because you know as we've talked about in previous episodes there's a lot of domestic work that takes a lot of woman power basically <laughs> like exactly. laundry yeah. takes a lot of work cooking takes a lot of work so that's basically it and it it is also just the fact that I don't have exact numbers for this but like there would have been to my understanding more more men sorry there would have been more women than there were men just like generally because men tended to like die in wars or die more often like on farm duties <laughs> um women did also die in childbirth a lot but there did seem to be like like it it seems to be that there it wasn't a hundred percent like one-to-one -one. and like we even see this today still right like yeah. most countries do have a population that would be like like yeah. 51 49 like it's not a hundred percent 50 50 um so yeah that's basically what's going on here is like a lot of the time men are doing jobs that get them killed <laughs> so you have a lot more women who are like also doing hard work but it's just not like work that is going to get you killed right. before you can get married right. if that makes sense or like yeah so i think that's also part of the reason why you know there is this higher proportion of unmarried women to unmarried men like you'd think that that number should be roughly even but it's because at least to my understanding of this topic it seems like there were more more both more men dying and also likely there was more men like going into religious life than women because you had a lot more priests and monks and stuff than you had nuns necessarily um so it, it's kind of a perfect storm of like you do have this situation and this is where i'm actually going to get into this is um like reasons why women would be single and a lot of the time it was that like as i've talked about this economic migration where women would move into cities and then you have a whole bunch of women in cities and there's not a lot of men who are living there at the same time so they end up going to the city working as a servant and then they just stay working as a servant or in some cases if they had a little bit of money um they could take on apprenticeships especially in the earlier middle ages um later in the middle ages guilds start to get like for lack of a better word more sexist and like <laughs> move more and more towards barring women from a lot of trades but in the earlier middle ages it is possible for women to get um apprenticeships especially for things that would be seen as more traditionally feminine roles like brewing was a thing that a woman could take on or like you know maybe she would work with a seamstress and like learn that kind of a trade and the other big thing is a poverty is poverty and lack of dowry um because medieval families right they understand that if you want to get married there have to be resources for the new couple to establish this household so even the poorest families were expected to provide a dowry for their daughter um, so if you couldn't provide that, then you could not get married as a woman. Um, so you would end up in this situation where you are, even if there was a man that was available for you to marry, if you were very poor, like if your family was very poor, you likely still could not get married. So there's like, right. there's a lot of issues that create this situation. Yeah. And as for what life was actually like, though, for women who did this, it wasn't necessarily, like, this terrible life, right? Like, I think we tend to look at the past and go, like, oh, yeah, like, all women were allowed to do was get married and make babies, and that was it. And it's, like, a lot of the time for rural women, 
who chose not to get married they could become or who could not get married one or the other um there were roles in the countryside like dairy maids which over over the middle ages become more and more female coded and more and more like this is a woman's job so they're able to make a living doing that and there are also um women who unmarried women who held land on a manor just the way that male tenants would and they were required to perform the same amount of labor to retain their tenancies so you could hypothetically be a woman living by yourself working your area of the land you could hypothetically like be a woman living on your own Um, and manorial records indicate that outside of plowing which was only a man's activity women did participate in all stages of the harvest So once again, that would be something that you're doing whether you're married or not. And again, for urban women, you would either be a domestic worker or you would be able to, you know, do some type of a trade or profession or apprenticeship. The other thing to talk about is sexuality because unlike men, women who were single risked ruining their family's reputation if they had any sort of sexual activity. Outside of marriage, of course. Um, By the middle to late middle ages, like, um, so like, you know, 1000 to about 1500, we do start to see more and more scrutiny leveled towards single women. Right. Um, Mostly because like marriage starts to become, starts to be seen as more and more of a good thing that keeps people from sinning right like the big thing is as we've talked about before right like in the middle ages especially in the earlier middle ages like marriage is not necessarily seen as like a really really good thing it's kind of seen as like a distant second best right because the best way to be is to be like jesus or mary and be celibate for your entire life and not get married and just focus on you know serving the lord and helping the poor and the vulnerable etc so that's like what that that's like the pinnacle right and then getting married is this like oh fine I guess if you really can't keep it in your pants like (gasps) oh fine but you know the marriage starts to I mean I'm obviously exaggerating a little bit but like you know it's not seen as this like oh yeah like everyone's going to get married and that's like the greatest thing and wow we're going to give you you know this is going to be this like high point of your life where you get your big white fancy dress and you know we have a giant party and you you're going to hang pictures of it on your walls forever and ever you know like it just wasn't this like as big of a deal if that makes sense right yeah but it does become you know more and more kind of idolized over time if that makes sense where it becomes more seen as like oh this is actually a really good thing and it's you know about companionship and like this is supposed to reflect the union between christ and the church and how lovely da 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 so you know it you you do start to see some more suspicion being leveled at people especially women because obviously women we have to remember at this point are seen as the more sexual (laughs) gender the ones who like really just want to get it on all the time yeah but you know i think so it it does become more and more of like a this is a good thing that people should be doing um but again that doesn't mean that people suddenly were like oh man everyone's got to get married like there was still a good percentage of women who chose not to or could not marry And it's really unclear how many of them were sexually active or what that type of sexual activity would look like. Um, Obviously, like, if you were in, if you were women in a same-sex relationship, that would almost certainly fly under the radar. Yeah. Because there's no babies that are going to result from that, and two women could live together, and that's, you know, that's gals being pals. You know, just... Gal pals. Just best friends. Just no big deal there. And, I mean, the other thing is, again, as we will talk about later and have mentioned in the past, there were, you know, I mean, there, A, are all kinds of sexual activity that you can do uh, clandestinely, 
that will not result in a baby. So as long as no one catches you actively having sex, like you're fine. Um, and even if you are having the type of sex that can result in a baby, there are, you know, some rudimentary forms of birth control and rhythm method and that kind of thing. Then as we get into the early modern period, um, especially as we get into the early modern period in Protestant countries, we see more and more of a emphasis on marriage, especially marriage for women. Um, marriage in Protestant religion is not a sacrament like the way it is in the Catholic Church, but it was a holy institution and was believed to be the ideal state for basically everyone. It was both Martin Luther and other reformers taught that marriage was life's true crucible and God's method of protecting men and women from sin. So as we get into the 1500s and, you know, through the 1600s, 1700s, from this point forward, single people generally are viewed with increasing suspicion and derision, particularly women. Um, There are laws that come into place um, in the 16th century, Um, for example, in London, where strong and healthy single women under the age of 50 were forbidden to rent houses or rooms so you uh so you were not allowed to rent houses or rooms your only option to live somewhere was that you had to go into service like you had to be a domestic servant if you were an unmarried woman because that meant that you were living with a nice respectable family you could not just live on your own yeah and women with bad reputations could just be evicted by their landlords no questions asked and you just it, it again we like to think of history as this like linear upward progression it's like no like women women's rights in some cases eroded yeah before they bounced back and are being eroded again right now but anyway (laughs) um but this also does not mean that suddenly everyone was getting married the average age of first marriage remained late 20s for men and mid 20s for women like at least in northern and western europe uh southern and eastern europe Ages of marriage tended to be somewhat lower, but it was still would have been around, you know, like early 20s kind of thing. Um, And we can see that even in the early modern period, even in places where there was a lot more issues with single women, about 10% of women still never married at all. And in some places and times, um, this number rose. And uh, we can also see that depending on the context, this number could be much higher. Uh, For example, nearly 20% of all English women were single in the mid-17th century. But I do also want to point to the work of Amy M. Froid, F-R-O-I-D-E, Freud, Froid, 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 that's how I assume it would be pronounced, but also I don't know if she... Amy M. Fouad? I don't know. That looks like Fouad to me, but if I'm mispronouncing it, because I know different places will pronounce things differently, I'm very sorry. Um, Anyway, check out her book, Never Married, Single Women in Early Modern England, where she does break down how, you know, there's this considerable rift between the perception of single women in the early modern world in she's talking about England specifically, but this is also reflected in other early modern um, kind of nation, like early nations, um, where there is this big divide between the perception and the reality, where you're getting more and more of these negative stereotypes, often driven by this new insistence on marriage that says that, you know, quote unquote spinsters and old maids are you know, useless and lonely and they're just sad all the time and they have 18 cats and isn't that sad and maybe they're witches. Um, And it's like, but if you actually look at the evidence of how people were living their lives, it's like, no, like, even though people were out here being derisive towards these women or pitying them, it's like, they were just out here, you know, living their lives, being, doing their jobs. Uh, Apparently, a lot of women were also, remained very active in trade um, and in taking up different trades. And especially if you were able to inherit any kind of money, like there's records of women 
lending out money during this time period and that gives you you know significant power in your local economy if you are bankrolling somebody's business right or also even if you are like you know doing these jobs that maybe other people didn't necessarily want to do right like if you were as we've talked about before taking in people's laundry or doing that kind of thing you know there is still a certain amount of freedom that you have that a married woman wouldn't where you don't like you're kind of you're not really beholden to anyone and you don't have to worry about you know childbirth and all of those implications so there's kind of this you know very real you know divide between yeah on one hand the rhetoric of oh these single women are just so sad and isn't their life terrible and it's like uh, I make my own money and I do whatever I want with my money and I don't have to have 10 kids and then die in childbirth. So, <laughs> like, who's laughing now, buddy? And I think that's some I like... I know I, I said I wouldn't talk about monks and nuns, but I think that this is very relevant right now, is a lot of the time the monks and nuns in the medieval period did not have much of a choice. Um, their parents would just send them off and say this is what you're doing because I don't have a dowry for you sorry that you have to be a nun daughter even though you didn't want this and there's all these letters that are written you know by other nuns or sometimes by other monks to these new newly you know initiated young women saying like look I understand that you are sad that you are you know you've been sent to a monastery and that this isn't what you wanted for your life and this isn't what you were imagining because these would have normally been you know maybe young teenage girls kind of thing yeah um but they would say in their letters like i know this isn't what you were hoping for and i know this necessarily isn't what you wanted but like look at it this way you dodged a massive bullet because childbirth is terrible like childbirth is terrible recovering from childbirth is terrible it's painful it's deadly yeah and i mean also we need to do a whole section on party nuns which is what i like to call the nuns who basically just did whatever they wanted Mm -hmm. and because they came from rich families and were rich themselves no one could really stop them (laughs) i mean definitely some of it is played up because it'll be like you know, some stick-up-his-butt reformer who's, like, going to, like, medieval, you know what I mean? Not the Reformation, but, like, you know, some moralist shows up and is like, I can't believe these nuns wear silk. Wow, isn't that so decadent and terrible? Why aren't they wearing burlap? Um, But there also does seem to be, you know, a certain amount of nuns just being like, yeah, I'm going to wear what I want and I'm going to go to parties and I'm going to keep bees and write poems and hang out and maybe also take some lovers because, you know. Honestly, my dream life. Right? Doesn't sound bad at all. So I think that's the other big thing is that we have to remember, like, this is a time before, uh, like, anesthetic or antibiotics and, like, if you didn't get married as a woman, that was, you were dodging a pretty big bullet in terms of childbirth there. And I think I'm going to hand it over to Margot now, because I do have a little bit about Queen Elizabeth and how she influenced people's views on, you know, being a, be, being a virgin for your entire life. The Virgin Queen. The Virgin Queen. They named the colony Virginia after her virginity. Stop ruining her propaganda. <laughs> so we will talk about her impact on people's views in the bonuses, and we'll see you then. But for now, we're going to talk about Puritans and Quakers. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about um, unmarried women's specifically in the New World. Um, I'm going to touch for a sec on the Puritans, because you know how we love those Puritans. Um, And then I'm going to talk about sort of the polar opposite um, with the Quakers. Sounds good to me. Yeah. And full disclosure, like, I am a Quaker, so 
I don't know if that's any any biases, but um. So when we're to balance you out is what I'm saying. Excellent. So when we're talking about like not not getting married and what that meant for somebody, um, where you were in North America played a big part in this. Um, so for example, we have in Massachusetts, um, a woman, Rebecca Dickinson, uh, writes about essentially like mourning the life that could have been where she got married and was a mother and instead now is just like a spinster aunt and is very sad about it. Um, and like, so she's in rural, 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 she's in rural Massachusetts. Um, and we can compare that to somebody else who is living in Philadelphia, right? In an urban environment where unmarried women were much more common, like we spoke about before, because they were able to like, perf- you know, make money from a trade or something. Um, so we could compare that, but also religion would have played a major part in this as well so if we're looking at rural new england um that is mainly a like puritan area right massachusetts um and the puritans really accepted a gender hierarchy and marriage and like and marriage as like the base unit of the family and then the family as the base unit of society at large um which which makes like anybody not being married seem read as problematic as a deviation as a deviant form of like living a christian life um whereas the friends uh, the Religious Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers, um, believed in the spiritual equality between the sexes. Um, so this comes from uh, interpretations of the Bible and creation story um, of George Fox, who sort of founded the Religious Society of Friends, um, where the idea of the fall from Eden, from heaven, whatever, um, was not just something that, like, Eve was a dumb biatch and she tricked Adam into doing something bad and she tricked Adam into, you know, sinning and eating from the fruit of knowledge and so then then they had to like you know go live in the regular world and adam had to be the master of the house to control her because she clearly was more you know sinful that wasn't that wasn't that's not the interpretation so the interpretation um that george fox has is more that um that it was a a mistake made in partnership. So in the original Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve were, quote, a helps meet. So they were complementary, right? They were equal and, uh, like, completed the other one. So it wasn't, like, confrontational or a hierarchy or anything. It was just both were the image of God because God existed as a duality and all of that stuff. And that then the mission of people on earth is to try and be as close to um, this original state, this prelapsarian state, right? Um, As you can on earth. And so the ideal is that everyone is is equal has an equal spiritual worth and that your your physical body is not a determination of your worth um so then your marriage should be an equal partnership you should be complementary no one should be controlling the other one now how 
much that actually um, really happened is up for debate. So there's also another sort of just to like do some more background on the Friends versus Puritans. Um, right, we've talked about the Puritans and predestination and how this sort of founding idea of the like Calvinist version of Protestantism was that you either were evil <laughs> essentially or you were one of the chosen saints and it's like you know whether or not you're going to heaven is like already determined um you don't have any control over your salvation essentially I have to say, despite not being a Calvinist myself, I do kind of appreciate this interpretation because <laughs> think about it. That this just means that if you want to do bad thing, bad in air quotes, then like clearly you're just not saved, and like that's just that, that's just too bad for you. So what's the point in trying? You know, j- just go have your woodland orgy. Go sign your name in the devil's book. Who cares? If you're going to hell anyway, no matter what you do. Why would you? You know, <laughs> that sounds like that. That sounds like a get out of jail free card. Yeah, that's not how they interpreted it. But Tragic. so the George Fox and the Quakers, um, and like this, these are still obviously beliefs that are practiced now. There's not as much. There's not as many congregations that are actual like hardcore predestination Calvinists puritanical things anymore but there are still quite a few friends around myself included but the the quakers a foundational idea was that you had you had control over your salvation your behavior and your work uh in your community was a reflection of the inner work you were doing um following the inner light that leads to salvation um which is a relationship between a single person and god it cannot be mediated by any other people that's why there's no clergy um your interpretation of the bible shouldn't be mediated by any other people um because you don't know what's going on with another person you only know what's going on in your heart and your actions and your relationship with god so finding god and salvation like restored people to their rightful equality as it was before the fall um and so within this women were full actors within the religion and they were examples of behavior and conversion um that was me so right the the ideal is that women are fully equal in these situations um now there is a question as to whether or not like the Quakers of Pennsylvania were perhaps like by the 18th century more conservative towards women's actual roles than those who came before. So the 17th century Quakers of Massachusetts and also the 17th century like OG Quakers of Britain um, were probably like much more like trying to live this to the fullest whereas by the time people had really made it to pennsylvania and were fully setting up like establishing pennsylvania um so we're talking like you know mid 18th century um the lived reality was more conservative but this evidence of like a high view of women's capabilities and women's control in society are definitely still around um sort of throughout quaker society as but in Pennsylvania. So we have um, women establishing women's meetings. Um, There were also a lot of women who traveled as public friends. Uh, And I don't know, do we need a quick explanation of public friends? Okay. So uh, um, a public friend is kind of like a missionary. Um, So the meetings are Meetings are are open to anyone who wants to attend, and anybody who is curious is always welcome to, like, follow that path toward, you know, any information about Quakerism that they might want, but it's not the mission of every friend to proselytize. Um, So specific people who are called to that or called to work in, like, a public space are public friends, and they would be called to speak about how their faith and um, 
these particular beliefs influence either the charity work that they're doing or the particular ministry that they're doing where they're like hey you should come and like we can sit quietly together and like reflect on god or whatever so that's uh public friends there's a lot of women who traveled you know alone or in like all-female groups of public friends um going around doing charity work and uh preaching essentially um and there's also like there is conversation amongst early early quakers about how much like other protestant groups the family specifically like the nuclear family should be the sort of basis for society right your meeting should be built up of families of married people um so that you can like reflect this partnership that the original humans had in eden or whatever but the the lived reality of most quaker families was that they were actually established more as like extended kinship models rather than these like insular nuclear families um this was just because of like life on the frontiers of massachusetts and um pennsylvania because uh especially if you're in new england the acceptance into actual cities and towns of quakers was was not great so you were tended to be on the the like sort of fringes of where most people had set up larger societies um so you would have this family uh, that had, you know, aunts, uncles, spinsters, relatives, or grandparents, or whoever living with you um, because of all sorts of situational re- reasons. So the death of a spouse, or remarriage, or late marriage, or not getting married. Um, because of these situations, uh, spinsters often, and I'm using spinsters because that's how they refer to themselves. So, like, unmarried woman. Yeah. I mean, that word also, like, was not necessarily like derogatory no at the time either like it referred to like your task within a household yeah right you would be continue spinning as a unmarried woman would yeah and like the reason that that actually became um like the word for an unmarried woman is because so many women like worked outside of the home as like that was a job title of spinster of like woman who spins thread thread and like, wool yeah like wool into thread and then that is like you could make your living doing that and then selling that product so the word spinster literally just comes from a woman who is independent getting yep. her bag making her money not derogatory yeah exactly um so anyway these these unmarried women um spinsters if you will often appropriated the roles of other women who had died or for whatever reason could not fill them so if someone was injured or sickly or whatever um couldn't do the physical tasks that were required of you know somebody filling the role of mother or wife um a an unmarried sister or whatever would take on that role in a family and so you had these sort of like or grandmothers or widows you know widowed aunts widowed mothers whatever would take on these roles and so you had these like much more complicated families than was often written about as being the ideal um but we also have a lot of women who just for like theological reasons or for political reasons decided not to get married um there's a really cool example um of susanna wright who was an 18th century quaker woman um she was living in the what was then the frontier of lancaster uh, pennsylvania and she was really interesting she had a relationship with a man that she never married and he did marry someone uh, they were only married for a few years, and then she died, and they resumed their relationship, and she ended up inheriting his entire estate. Um, and she was very involved in local politics. Um, this was at a time when there was a lot of conflict between uh, on the border of Pennsylvania and Maryland. Um, but she worked, so she worked as a scribe, she worked as a legal counselor, an apothecary. She handled all of... Um, the man whose relationship she was in, she handled his business, and then later, when she inherited his estate, um, she <laughs> there were people who were 
who referred to her unabashed politicking. Ooh, yeah, I like an unabashed <laughs> Yeah, she so um she considered it. She wrote a lot. She, there's extensive records of her her personal writings, and um she did have very firm ideas of what was masculine and feminine roles in society, like pretty much everyone at this period did. But she considered political and scholarly activity to be feminine pursuits. Um, and she said that resisting a gender hierarchy was the only way for women to develop a true self. Um, and she wrote to a friend in this like really dramatic poem. She wrote to her friend about who was also unmarried about not getting married. Um, basically the, the poem in the middle. So it starts off talking about how like awful it is. The, how awful heterosexual marriage is because men think that they have a right to control women and they don't. Um, and then she writes in the second half about how wonderful this woman is for refusing to yield obedience to an individual man or an institution that didn't line up with the ideal of a Quaker marriage, right? So essentially this this marriage... Uh, marriage as it existed in the world right now or in the 18th century um didn't reflect god's original image um and that not only was mortality right the 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 death of a person uh part of the like result of that original sin but so was this idea of man's rule that this idea of that this idea of man's rule of man's hierarchy like over women over anything really uh is also a perversion of this original image right so she believed and a lot of quakers at the time were writing about how there were these two products of this original sin um and part of it was this men's acceptance of this state was a clear lack of humility and evidence of sin in and of itself so because men were like yo we should be controlling you because you're the reason that everyone has sin um she's like that is bananas and that is evidence that that's evidence of your sin that you can't be huge like humble that you uh think that you should be in a position of god over some other human yeah um she also wrote about how um if when you are being wooed by a man right and are appealing to reason uh the quakers got really big into the enlightenment um that if you're you're like trying to talk to him about how your marriage should go like that it should be this partnership and he's not living up to it um that like again like reflection of of society that like people aren't going to live up to what is reasonable what is like part of this theology so you just shouldn't take part in it she viewed romance as a way for a man to sneak into a woman's life and then uh control her through her love for him um and that it was better to just like leave the whole thing to somebody else um so what we see here from her writing and from writings of her friends who are also unmarried is that Quaker women had access to this theology that allowed them to push back against these traditional gender roles and marriage, right? So she was able to look to not only her own theology, but to the Enlightenment, to all of these different um, spaces that she had access to because of this theology, because of this idea that women and men were equal. Um, Her quote is, there is no sex in the soul, right? Your your soul is just it's spirit. It's not biological, and so it wouldn't be male or female. Yeah, I mean that makes sense, and it's pretty like, you know, I mean that's the whole thing with like there's no 
like marriage ends at death because when you die yeah. there's no like individual yeah the, well there's no like individual like in that in in the sense of like oh yes i'm going to be like i i die and go to heaven and i look exactly the way i did and i have this same body and it's like that's not how that works yeah i find the whole mormon planet thing fascinating (laughs) but yeah uh um yeah so essentially like in this urban area of pennsylvania where you had a lot of these like very well educated quakers there were a lot of women who were just straight up like nope no thank you and who were still like in some cases having relationships with men but like feeling kind of weird about them and so not wanting to make them like a legally binding part of their lives um and this is complicated though because these women had money so they were born into this situation where they were part of a religion that allowed that actively preached that they were equal um they were in a space where like regionally they could provide for themselves or they had enough money from their families to right support themselves and to not have to think about a life where you had to get married um and they're sort of the friends have a history of being kind of a part of a lot of politics in the the early republic but also kind of pushed to the outside of a lot of mainstream society so as you get into the early republic this i the system of these like subordination of women became sort of increasingly political and politicized so i've talked before about like republican motherhood and this like republican wife and the duty of the republican woman and it takes a lot from this idea of this protestant idea of and particularly puritan idea of the marriage being the sort of standard building block for the rest of society where you would have right the the like man controlling everybody else in the society is sort of the reflection of the government controlling the governed. And so the subordination of women becomes a reflection for like the consensual uh, subordination of the governed to the government. And that becomes like this big thing in early Republic writings about how the U S should function. Um, and this also like represents sort of the, the fact that that is used so often in these early Republican writings reflects like the universal the universality of marriage at this time, and that people should have this willingness to be controlled, um, and to be subjects, right? Which it seems like this weird thing after all the writings of the revolution. But this is why a lot of people talk about how, like, the American Revolution wasn't particularly revolutionary. Um, it was it was a movement of poor workers and merchants in New England that was co-opted by wealthy planters of Virginia and turned into this very strange thing. Um but yeah, so these, like, again, these women were living at a very specific time in a very specific place with specific people that allowed them this freedom to just be like, I know that I will be happier without this man, so I am not going to do it. Um, which was unique for where they were and the amount of freedom that you had to support yourself and to learn and think and and write and essentially like be free uh and it was very different for colonial women in other times now obviously there's like a totally different thing going on in like indigenous communities and we'll probably talk about that in the future but um marriage sort of occupied a very different relationship for women uh, that we've talked about 
in the bonuses and stuff for especially like Iroquois women. Um, so yeah, it's a. There was this one like bright shining space uh, of Quaker women in Pennsylvania who are essentially allowed to just be like, mm, no, which uh, there's been a bunch of like recent psychological surveys done and the happiest group of people in the world are single women over 30. That checks out. <laughs> <laughs> We're going on a population-wide scale. No, because, like, genuinely, there it, there's also the whole, like, um... Right, I'll take the better microphone now that I'm going to talk a little bit. Because th- there's another thing where, um, if you look at marriage, like, marriage is good for, like, marriage is good for men regardless of the quality of the marriage. Like, it doesn't matter if it's a good marriage, it's, like, a mediocre marriage, if it's a bad marriage, like, it does not matter the like the man will have better health outcomes and like live longer and like all that kind of stuff than single male counterparts um mostly the research seems to indicate that it's because women do things like that this is all based on like heterosexual marriage um and it's all based basically around the fact that single men tend not to like eat vegetables or go to the doctor whereas when they get married their wives are like how about eating like a vegetable so that you don't get literal scurvy which is apparently a real problem with a lot of like widowers from older generations um because their wives die and then it just does not occur to them to like eat anything besides like toast i guess and like cereal and then they show up at the doctor and are like horrendously malnourished um which which is really very sad but it's also just like jesus christ your wife didn't make vegetables because it was just like no reason you know same with going to the doctor same with like any type of like health and wellness thing um whereas research finds that marriage is actively bad for women unless it is a high quality marriage where you know, there is, like, reciprocity and egalitarian behavior and, like, the husband is supportive and, like, kind to her and loves her and, like, isn't just treating her like a live-in bang maid. So <laughs> that's something to keep in mind. <laughs> I have a very happy marriage, so it's not... <laughs> this, is, this is not me dunking on marriage. This is me saying, you know... Exactly. Do better. And also just like this idea of like, oh, like it's just it's so sad and terrible for a woman to be unmarried. And it's like, no, no, no. And I think it's also just like interesting to see the way that this type of idea has shifted over time from being like, eh, like you're a woman who doesn't want to get married. Like, that's fine, I guess. Like. As long as you're not, you know, having, as long as you don't literally have a child outside of marriage, like, we're probably just going to be okay with it, and how it slowly transforms into this, like, your entire purpose is to get married and have babies, and if you don't do this, you are a failure, and you are causing the collapse of society, and it's like, hey, maybe don't, hey, maybe this should Maybe we should just let people not, like, men and women, just let people feel like they don't have to be coupled up to, like, be accepted and, like, live their lives. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I mean, my notes are do do better dudes. If you're, if you're a dude, any anywhere on that dude spectrum, just do better, because, uh... Since at least the 18th, 1800s, um, women have been like, maybe it's just not worth it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if I, I will say the other thing is uh, because men tend to retain fewer friends into adulthood, 
So that's the other thing is that for a lot of men, their wives are their only friend. Whereas women tend to like have friends and emotional support and stuff outside of their husbands. So like, again, it's just the situation where you're like, no, I'm just like, <laughs> they're not like us. They don't have hobbies. <laughs> I need to stop. No, we need to cut that. They make me sad. I just, I just want, if you're a man and you have friends and eat vegetables, I'm very proud of you. And if you're a man who doesn't have friends and doesn't eat vegetables, I'm rooting for you. Like, I want you to, I, I want you to make choices that are going to lead to a long-term happiness that is not reliant on your wife slash female partner literally dragging you to the doctor because oh my god you clearly have pneumonia and you aren't going to the doctor despite clearly having pneumonia that's not my marriage that's just but that is a real story of a real couple i know so like that's you know don't do that just just take care of yourself a little bit you know eat like a tangerine <laughs> And check back in for Bobby Yaga bonuses later this week. We'll be back next week. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Bobby Yaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.